Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, and we will pick up um, where we left off last week in this first section of chapter 3. And while you turn there, I'll remind you yet again of where this passage sits in the context of Ephesians. You may notice that I emphasize the structure and context of books a lot, and do it even more so in a book like Ephesians, where I really hope and believe that by the end of our time through it, you ought to be able to, it should be reasonably reasonable for many of you, to have at least a broad outline structure of the book in your minds. The value of that being that as you go and read it in your own devotional life, day by day, we understand the meaning of the text as it relates to the rest of the text. Um, our passage this morning is a, is a great example of that. So I'll remind you again that Ephesians is six chapters. It's an epistle written by Paul from prison in Rome to a relatively healthy church. There's no major problems. There's no evidence of doctrinal correction that Paul is giving as he does in other letters. And the six chapters divide neatly in half with the first three focusing primarily on truth, doctrine, orthodoxy, while the second half focuses on um, application, orthopraxy. Here's what God has done and here's how to live in light of it. And so we're coming to the end of the first half and in the first half, we saw a sandwich um, last week, I tried to point out to you. I really think the, the center of Paul's teaching content in, in Ephesians is chapter 2. I mean, there's plenty of teaching throughout. But the two contrasts in chapter 2, the first about individual salvation, God's work in making you and I alive in Christ's resurrection, and in Christ's exaltation, we being lifted up, and in his being seated at the right hand of the Father, we are seated as the basis for overcoming our spiritual deadness, our slavery to our flesh and this world, and that we have been fashioned anew in Christ for good works. That first contrast is, is critical for everything he's going to say in the second half of the book. And his second contrast, the before and after, corporately dealing with us Gentiles being included into the church, is even, I think, of greater significance. And that's highlighted by the fact that Paul prays on either side of chapter 2. So chapter 1 closes out. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. Now look at that twice. At the end of 17 and 18, his prayer is that by divine power through God's spirit, the Ephesian believers might be able to know something. And he wants them to know are three what's. What, verse 18, are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? And I skipped the first one. What is the hope to which he has called you? And that notion of power is where he then finishes chapter 1, pointing out God's power in raising Christ from the dead and raising him above all earthly powers and seating him at the right hand of power of the Father. So he prays for our understanding of the power of God at work. And then he proceeds to talk about the power of God at work in us, solving our first set of problems with our union with Christ and his resurrection and his exaltation. And then he talks about how God has solved our problems in Christ as Gentiles by fashioning us anew, Jew and Gentile, together into one new man into the church. 
so that together we are fellow members of the household of God. We're being joined together, being built together. We are fellow citizens together. And really, all of chapter 3 is a setup and execution of another prayer. We saw that last week. That for this reason, 3-1. And I asked you to consider, for what for this reason? It's a setup for some action, some verb. I think what he's setting up is verse 14, where he actually has to repeat, for this reason, I bow my knee. For this reason, Paul says, I pray. And so verses 1 through 13 are, are an extended aside or introduction to his prayer. So you've got on either side of chapter 2 prayer and prayer for the same thing, that they might be able to understand and comprehend by spiritual power, I think what Paul has mainly just taught. At the very least, the teaching content of chapter 2 is, is sandwiched on either side by prayers for understanding. And part of what Paul's even doing here in preparation for his prayers is, is in some sense giving his authority and his apostolic credentials to establish what he's just taught. He knows what he's just taught, especially the second bit about Jew and Gentile together. The, the abolishment of the law of commandments is going to take authority to establish. It is something new. He admits it. And you can imagine Jewish believers who, from their earliest remembrances, have only eaten certain foods has abstained from certain things, to be told 40, 50, 60 years into your life, you no longer have to do that anymore. Those rules are no longer binding and governing to you. You no longer need to offer sacrifices. You no longer need to base your worship around the temple. These are radical changes, and Paul understands this is not something that the Old Testament clearly predicted. That He's making it clear this teaching rests in large part upon his apostolic authority, which is why he's laying out to them his apostolic authority and where he got this teaching from. I think that's how we can understand verses 1 to 13 in a broad sense. So last week, we looked at particularly... The mystery of Christ revealed, that this teaching is new, it's a mystery, but it's been revealed to Paul, and not just Paul, but to the other apostles and to his prophets. This week, we're going to look at Paul's ministry of the gospel. But I'd like to begin by reading all of verses 1 to 13 in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is, 
your glory. Lord God, I echo Paul's prayer. I ask that you would, by your spirit, give us strength to comprehend, to understand, to apply, to receive, and integrate into our thinking this glorious truth, that we would not merely um, tip our hat at it or merely acknowledge it, but, but embrace it, and that our lives would be fashioned by it. You have brought us near who are far away, and you have made us together into your body, into your church. I pray that you would help us to believe that and to live that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we saw in the first six verses last week how Paul acknowledges that this is a mystery. It's a great new truth, not clearly revealed before. When we see mystery in the Bible, think more like a secret and less of a whodunit. And this week, Paul is, we're going to see, establishing his ministry. So the, the source of his information is God himself. And now he's been authorized and entrusted with the task of teaching this very thing. So we understand that what Paul has just taught, what he's saying, what he's doing in this letter, is sanctioned by God. The source of his information is God. And the authority by which he teaches and instructs is from God. So we're going to look at um, Paul's gospel ministry in four points. The first, the gift of Paul's ministry. The gift of Paul's ministry. For this reason, he begins, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. He's in jail, and yet he speaks of his ministry being a gift. I love the way he defines himself first, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So Paul views himself as a servant, literally the words of diakonos, a minister or a servant of the gospel. That's that's a great way of self-identification. Paul, I am a minister of the gospel. The gospel that announces Christ's death and in Christ's death, the union of Jew and Gentile into a new body. Because the of this gospel links back to verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This gospel is what I've been entrusted to be a minister of. So Paul is in prison, and yet he is identifying himself as a servant or a minister of the gospel. Um, and, And so... Despite the the deep truths Paul's seeing, and this is the important thing with theology, Paul's just been teaching deep truths about the relationship of Jew and Gentile, unity in the church, our union both with Christ and with each other, but he sees them as coming out of and not abstracted from the gospel. Sometimes we can be tempted to, let's not teach theology, let's just teach the gospel For Paul, theology, rightly taught, is part of the gospel. It flows out of the gospel. Let me tell you what Christ has accomplished in his death. In his death on the cross, he destroyed both old men and created a new one. Right? That's what he just said at the end of chapter 2. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Paul's looking to the cross, and on the cross he is seeing Jesus not just paying for our sins... But in his flesh, removing that which separated Jew from Gentile. So Paul sees this teaching of our union with him and with each other as part of coming out of and not separate from the gospel. It's one of the implications of the gospel. Which is why Paul is belaboring this point so heavily. As a servant of the gospel, 
And this gift is according to God's grace and God's power, we see. Next. Um, Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And again, remember, Paul, where he is right now, he's in jail. And if you or I were there, you might be tempted to think, this is a great gift. I mean, it started off great. I got to go do some missionary journeys, but now I've been sitting for over a year in a jail. And yet Paul, in prison, you may be tempted to think benched, sidelined, is still viewing himself as a minister of the gospel and this ministry as a gift, even though he's already told us he's in jail precisely because of this gift, right? Assuming that you've heard, a prisoner, of, sorry, verse one, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. I'm a prisoner because of this ministry. This ministry is a gracious gift of God. God's gracious gifts don't always prosper us materially. You're not always going to be living your best life now when you're experiencing God's gracious gifts. And yet they are indeed God's gracious gifts. We're to see Paul say at the end of this passage, his suffering is their glory. It's a different way of viewing things. It's a different way of sizing things up. So Paul is a servant of the gospel, and this ministry isn't something he took for himself. It isn't something he signed up for, he applied for. It's God's gift, and it's a gift of God's grace, and it's a demonstration of God's power. Grace, because it's undeserved. He's going to go on to explain just how undeserved it is in a moment. Power, because it demonstrates what God is capable of doing. God is able to take a Jewish Pharisee and persecutor of the church and transform him into the apostle to the dirty, filthy Gentiles. That's power. God's able to take one who is attacking the church, and he is able to turn him into one who loves the church. God's able to take someone who is zealously ethnocentric. He would have been, if he's anything like the rest of the Gentiles, despising the, I mean, of the Pharisees, despising the Gentiles. Now he's the apostle to the Gentiles. That's a demonstration of God's power. That also, that theme links back into what he's already been praying for them to understand. Remember, what he wants them to understand, partly, is God's power at work in them. And so Paul's highlighting the power of God at work in him. I used to be a church-persecuting Pharisee. Now I'm a gospel-preaching, Gentile-serving servant of the gospel. That's the power of God at work. And third, Paul's ministry is despite his unworthiness. Despite his unworthiness. This is the type of language Paul uses regularly. Verse 8, the beginning of verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of the saints. Uh, Paul never got over the grace of God in his life. God's grace is not about how worthy we are. God's grace is precisely seen in contrast to our unworthiness. We're made his beloved sons and daughters, precisely because we didn't deserve it. To the degree that you or I deserve salvation, to whatever degree that is, salvation's not grace. And I got to stress that because it's very popular in the church today to teach just how valuable you are and how important you are and how much you can accomplish and how much limitless potential you have. That is not the way Paul thought about himself. It simply is not. And that type of thinking, and you can, we'll even see, we have an important role to play in God's plans. These are half-truths. You and I are part of something great and huge and momentous, 
And, and, and by God's agency and his power, we can further his plan. I mean, we, we are, you'll see in a minute, we're part of a plan that's meant to silence and, and demonstrate God's triumph over demons and angels. It's, it's grand, but it's built on a foundation not of our worth and value, but of God's grace in light of. We are beloved despite our unworthiness. I mean, listen to how Paul speaks about himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. This is not some aberration. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Or 1 Timothy 1, 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. So one of the ways the wisdom of the world tries to creep into the church is telling us, no, no, no. I mean, I remember driving to church here when I used to live in Marseille. I almost drove off the road. I'm, I don't listen to Christian radio that often because so much of the lyrical content is discouraging. But I was driving, and I remember hearing the song, and in the chorus of the song, I, I don't know who it was. I don't want to know who it was. Um, but the chorus, you got to believe, you got to believe. I'm like, okay, we got to believe. you got to believe that you are worth dying for. No. <laughs> if we were worth dying for, Christ's death isn't grace. It was a good deal. It was a bargain. It was shrewd. No. Paul. Paul says he is the worst of sinners. Paul says, though I'm the very least of all the saints. And from that vantage point, from those depths, God's grace is seen big. And from that vantage point, God can do great things with Paul and with you and with me. Just wanna, okay, moving on. The gift of Paul's ministry. So Paul has been authorized by God. He's been given this ministry. He's been given this gift. It's by grace. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. He didn't ask for it. It's God's sovereign grace, a demonstration of God's power in spite of his unworthiness. Now we're going to move from the gift of Paul's ministry to the method of Paul's ministry. Okay, what task is Paul to be about? He makes it clear. Two things, here at least. First, um, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the purpose, the met, sorry, the method of Paul's ministry, the method of Paul's ministry. First, to proclaim to the Gentiles the riches of Christ. Um, the ESV there has preach, but the notion is heralding, proclamation, announcing. Paul is, is going about place by place, heralding what God has done. That's one of the reasons why you and I can preach the gospel to our neighbors. You don't necessarily have to be able to defend it. It's good if you can, but fundamentally the gospel is announced. It is heralded. Let me just tell you what God has done. Well, I don't like that. Okay, it's been heralded to you. Now we are told to study to show ourselves approved, be ready to give answers, but that's separate from the act of heralding. It's simply enough to announce the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, not your and my clever defense of it. It's good that we're able to defend it. But the gospel is still just as powerful without a defense as with one. So Paul is to proclaim to the Gentiles the riches of Christ. And as you read through Acts, he slowly figures that out because he usually starts in a synagogue and then the Jews, we saw this last week, get mad at him when they find out he's also preaching to the Gentiles. And so Paul 
understands that even though he, man, he loves his home people, he'll go to the Jews first if he can. Really, where God's called him to is a ministry to the Gentiles. And what he's preaching, what he's heralding, what he's announcing is the, the unsearchable riches of Christ. So, so in other words, gospel means good news. Paul is saying, I have a message for the Gentiles of good news, and it is that God has sent his anointed, his Messiah. And his Messiah, his anointed, is so much grander and greater and more wonderful than you could ever imagine or believe. This is where he's going in, in, in his prayer in, in chapter 3, the unsearchable riches. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Um, which is to say, you and I do not understand and comprehend the goodness, the love, the power, the richness of Christ. Period. We, we never will. In Colossians, uh, Paul writes a parallel concept in chapter 2. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So there's limitless riches, all wisdom and knowledge is in Christ. His love is vast and unsearchable. And Paul's ministry in proclaiming the gospel is proclaiming Christ. He's not preaching himself. He's not preaching their worth, his worth, but the worth of Christ. So that's one wing of what Paul does. His, his ministry, his stewardship of the gospel, he says, I proclaim to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to reveal to everyone to reveal to everyone something else. So he's got a singular focus of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and a general focus of making something else known. He says it here, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So, to reveal. What's he to reveal? The administration of the mystery of Christ. That word, uh, the plan there word, is literally the Greek word we get economics from. It's the administration, an ordering. It's also the word he used back in in verse 2. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship, the administration, literally, of God's grace. And here the focus is on, he wants the world to see that God has ordered and planned, we sometimes speak of it as salvation history, the way the plot moves forward, the way salvation is accomplished. It was predicted by prophets. God worked through a particular people group. And now that administration is taking on a new form as God is working in and through the church. I believe that's what Paul has in mind. The administration of the mystery. Because that linking back to the mystery, he's already told us in verse 6 what the mystery is. The mystery is the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. So Paul is to bring to light for everyone the administration of the mystery. That Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. Hidden for ages in God who created all things. This mystery is so well hidden, in fact, that... Uh, t- turn to Ephesians 5, briefly. I mean, it's there. But without the New Testament revelation, you can't see it clearly. I'll give you one example. 
Um, look at, look at uh, his instruction to husbands in chapter 5, right? Verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's he quoting there? Genesis 2, right? This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul's saying, on the one hand, this plan has been in place. This isn't plan B. This has always been the plan, and it's been hidden. And some of it's been hidden in plain sight, like right there. Paul's saying, hey, guess what? You wouldn't have known this reading Genesis on your own, but I'm telling you, the picture and the pattern of marriage set up by God in Genesis 2 is predictive of Christ's relationship to the church. So this is part of the plan. It's a new, mysterious development. It hasn't been clearly predicted, but it's not as though God suddenly changed plans. Paul wants to make both points clear. It is new. It is a mystery. It's been from ages past planned. So that's, that's what he's making the point here, to reveal the administration of the mystery of Christ, hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So this plan goes way, way back. It's, it's not some new development. It's not God responding to some move. No, this has been the plan, but it's only now revealed. It's only now revealed. So Paul's ministry is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to show to everyone what God is doing. So, so get this. The point is that in the church, God is doing something special. And Paul is just as much meant to show and highlight and reveal to everyone what God is doing in the church as he is to preach the gospel to Gentiles and enlarge the church. That's what he's saying he's doing is both things. And that's going to move us now into our, the, our third point, the purpose of Paul's ministry. To what end? To what effect? Paul goes from what he's been told to do to preach the gospel, to bring to light. Now, so that purpose of Paul's ministry. First, to make known the manifold wisdom of God. To make known the manifold wisdom of God. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So God has a purpose. And it's to save people. I think we get that. The gospel must be preached. But he has another purpose in addition to that. He wants the wisdom of his plan. He's got this great plan. In fact, he defines it as the manifold wisdom of God, a many-sided. That's one of the things I'm trying to get at is sometimes we're so focused on some of the sides of God's wisdom and God's plan. For instance, the part or the side of God's plan where he pays for our sin on the cross, where Jesus Christ's substitutionary death atones for our sin. We get that, and we love that, and right, we should. It's wonderful. God's up to more than that. His wisdom is manifold. His, his stewardship and his plan is complex. And in Paul's preaching and in Paul's bringing to light, the purpose is that God's wisdom, his manifold wisdom, would be made known. To who? This is where it starts getting interesting. The audience in view is not human, at least not here. The audience in view, Paul speaks of this way, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. 
to angels, and I believe the rebellious angels we call demons. Paul's already mentioned them, in fact. If you go back to to chapter 1, right? They're already in view here. The exaltation of Christ. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then spiritual rulers and authorities show up in chapter 2 because we were enslaved in following the course of, verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which is to say the devil. Turn to chapter 6 where we're ultimately headed. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We did not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So from beginning to end in Ephesians, Paul's had an eye on this conflict with Angelic spiritual authorities, I think most of what he has in view are the rebellious ones, although it's not absolutely clear in this passage. And here's, this is an amazing thing to grasp. What God is doing in the church is meant to teach them a lesson. It's meant to bring something to light to them. Paul's seeing his ministry on earth, his preaching of the gospel to Gentiles, his bringing to light this mystery as ultimately having an audience that is non-human, We get a glimpse of that in the book of Job, don't we? The whole discussion, everything that happens in Job is about proving a point to Satan. Right? That's the framing in the book. Satan and God have a discussion, which seems odd. And it's about whether or not Job's worship and reverence for God is genuine and authentic, or whether it's something God bought with goodies. We learn at the end, no, Job's worship and reverence of God is genuine. Satan learns or is shown the genuineness of Job's faith. Well, here, what God is doing in the church is of great importance, not just for the world around us, but for these rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is, we're caught up in something big. And our buying into this, our adopting this, our believing this, or our not, has implications not just for the world around you and your neighbors around you and your family around you, but for Rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Because the next amazing thing is God is making known his wisdom, you'd think, in his word, through the church. Through the church, God's wisdom is meant to be put on display. I think now we start to grasp why Paul prioritizes this teaching of our unity in the church as such an important thing. Because I think here's the rationale. Paul's saying... Christ, in his death on the cross, has done away with the law. He's abolished it. He's made a new man. He's fashioned you and I into a new man, Jew and Gentile. He's made peace between us. And in the church, demons and angels are supposed to see that reality and marvel at the wisdom and the power of God. What a wise God has taken such disparate people and united them together. And this is one of the reasons why it's important for us to gather. 
Because as we gather, young and old, men and women, all our different ways that you could intersect us, that the variegatedness of the body is the glory of the body. Um, The fact that we're not all like each other is the glory of the body. Because we're putting on display the wisdom of God that would take such a a broad spectrum of people and unite us in one body. When you add our local church in with the local churches in China and Iran and everywhere else in the world, you start to see what God is doing. And in and through the church, that wisdom is made known. Paul then makes it clear, moving on even further, to make known the manifold wisdom of God and point B, to complete God's eternal purpose accomplished in Christ. To complete God's Um, eternal purpose accomplished in Christ. Manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's, here's what I mean by complete. We are not adding or completing anything in regards to the work of Christ on the cross. He said there, it is finished. But here's the rationale. The head of the church has been raised into heaven, where he is seated Where is his body? It's here. And his body still has work to do. In fact, turn over to to Colossians quickly. Um, Paul will, I think, help explain this concept that you and I are in the church advancing, bringing completion to what Christ accomplished on the cross. I think that's probably the best way to think about it. Christ purchased, bought, accomplished something on the cross, and we, through our proclamation of the gospel, help apply and bring about the the reward of what he accomplished. So in Ephesians, I mean, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this in uh, verse, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, in my flesh, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to a saints. You see the similarity? There's a lot of similarity to Ephesians and Colossians. Um, to them, God has chosen to make known the great, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul, you can, can speak boldly of he's soaking up in his own flesh, filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And he does not mean I'm finishing off the atonement. What he means is, I believe, God has determined that the means of redeeming his people is the suffering of his son, and the means of spreading the message is the suffering of the body. I I think that's where Paul's actually even going in verse 13. We'll get there in in a few minutes. But, but through our, so here's, let me step back. What am I saying? Through our demonstrated unity, we bring to light and therefore move forward and help accomplish the plan God has that he had at the beginning of time, which is his son would redeem a people who would be united in him and that unity and that purity and that glory would reflect his glory. Go to, go to John 17. This would be another Oh, there's one other we're going to look at. John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. John 
Because what I'm trying to get across is that our unity, our peace, our oneness is of huge importance. Paul's hammering it and bolstering it and praying about it. This is what Christ was doing on the cross. He was making our peace, both with the Father and with each other. This is what Jesus is praying about in his high priestly prayer. And I want you to see again the so what. He's going to pray that we be one. Why? Look for the why. So Jesus first prays for himself in 17, 1 to 5. He prays for his disciples, the 12 or the 11, in 6 through 19. And then in verse 20, he starts praying for us. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our demonstrated unity and oneness is at least listed here as the means through which the world will learn that Jesus is from the Father. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are. Notice again, the standard to which our oneness is held is the Trinity. There's no room for, well, I love them, but I don't like them. Our oneness is not complete until it models the oneness of the Trinity. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me. You get an idea of just how critical and how much hangs in the balance of our unity? It's no small thing. This is one of the things we do when we gather on Sunday mornings is we demonstrate that, that what Christ has done on the cross overcomes whatever historical differences there might be. For Jew and Gentile, certainly, you've got slaves and masters in the church at Ephesus because Paul's going to speak to them both in chapter 6. And you think, wow, how, what could bring these people together? Historic enemies? Racial conflict and past that would make them be at all? Well, Christ has done something on the cross. God's power is demonstrated. His plan is seen to be wise in the church, but it's only seen as we act this out. Paul can proclaim it all day long, but until churches actually gather and do this, the angels aren't seeing it. The world's not seeing it. And so that is what Paul is saying here. So that, let's just read it again back in Ephesians 3. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities and heavenly purposes. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christ purchased and accomplished something on the cross, and we get to demonstrate the results of that. Maybe you can compare it to World War II wasn't won in the, the prison camps concentration camps, but the evidence of the victory was seen in the release of those people, right? I mean, that, that's, that's where you can see the proof of the victories and the freeing of those people. Christ won a victory on the cross, and that victory is seen in the transformation and change in the unity and the union we have with each other, just as much as it's seen in their unity with God. That's, that's, Paul's, that's Paul's point. To complete God's eternal purpose accomplished in Christ, through whom we have boldness and access. 
Just how reconciled are we to each other and to him? Together we come before God in prayer. That's one of the reasons why our corporate prayers are so significant. We're able together with one voice to come before the throne of God. It's huge. We not just individually, but together, corporately, when we pray. We're about to take communion in a few minutes. And again, we do that together. And in union together, we will come to this table. And God's wisdom and his power is seen in that. We have boldness and access. And of course, this is all ultimately through our faith in him. The table that we're going to come to in a few moments is for those who have faith. God's accomplished all these great things. But the benefits are only seen through those who have faith in him. I'm going to stop here as we prepare for communion this morning. Um, We'll pick up Ephesians chapter 3 next week. And I'd just like to close in prayer reminding you, challenging you to to really do more than to nod and say, yes, yes, we're one in Christ, but to realize how critical it is that we live this out, that we flesh this out, to use buzzwords, that we incarnate what Christ has done. Christ has accomplished it. We are to demonstrate it. Let me pray. Lord God, as you prepare now to come to this table, I pray that you would help us to come genuinely, sincerely, with our hearts cleansed. Help us to, um, in this unified act, as we as one body partake of this one cup and bread, that the angels and the rulers might see the wisdom of your plan, the glory of your plan, and your power at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.